You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Jawbreaker, Scurvy Legs, Kruger, M.D., Big Beard, Schmarls, Logan, Cannon Monkey, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Nicky, Toves, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we talked about the origins of Henry Every, perhaps the most infamous pirate of the age. And I told you that today we're going to talk about what we call the Pirates of the Round, and that's true. But who are we going to talk about today? Maybe Thomas Too or William May. George Dew or William Kidd, there are a lot of options here. But instead of all of those famous names, we're going to begin with a discussion about mercantilism and colonial law of rich and powerful merchant families and their relationship with royal authority, and a little piracy as a treat. Now, I know that that might not sound exciting. The Legal and economic bases of the colonial world aren't exactly swashbuckling fun, but they are the foundation on which the pirates of the round are to be built. Because, as this story is going to show us, pirates weren't a blight on the fortune of the colonial world or even of the burgeoning British Empire. They were an integral part of it. This is episode 179. Lawlessness. I'd like to begin with a relatively minor Massachusetts court case from the 1680s. In reality, I've been looking for a good place to fit this story in, and I've had trouble finding it, so today seems like as good a time as any. This is the curious case of Samuel Shrimpton. The Shrimpton family were relatively prosperous New England landowners. They didn't have the kind of sprawling plantations that you might find in Virginia or Carolina, but they owned enough land to house a few small farms that they leased out, and a couple of orchards, and even a small fishing operation. Now, I'm not going to delve into the specifics here, but when the patriarch of the Shrimpton clan died in 1684... His children disagreed over his will. 
Who owned what land in the wake of their father's death became a hotly contested issue. Eventually, Samuel Shrimpton and his sister went to court over the dispute. In February 1685, the court found in favor of the sister. Now, the legitimacy of that ruling is up for debate. The sister was married to a family member of the judicial body. It's all deeply corrupt, and Boston was still a small town, at least, you know, in spirit. But that's not the tactic that Samuel Shrimpton chose to use when he fought City Hall. By June of 1685, Shrimpton had still not vacated the land, and the court ordered him to appear before them. Shrimpton wrote an unbelievably bold letter to the court that told them, essentially, no. Your body is not valid, and it wasn't valid when you ruled on this case, so I will not recognize the ruling. Now, he had a point here. In June of 1684, the court of King Charles II promulgated a decree that the current colonial makeup of New England was to be abolished. They were all to be reorganized into the Dominion of New England. Word of that decision reached Boston a little later on that year on board the king's own frigate, HMS Rose, William Phipps' captain. We mentioned when we talked about Phipps that he carried Edward Randolph on board. He was the harbinger of this news. But the government of the Massachusetts Bay Colony heard Randolph's proclamation and even read the royal decree. It was all official, it was all on the up and up, but then they just kind of continued on with business as usual. They weren't ignoring the decree from the king. This was royal authority, after all. But what else were they going to do? The colony had to run until the new governor, Edmund Andros, arrived to set up a new government. They couldn't just take off their wigs and let lawlessness reign for the next several months. So the business of the colony of Massachusetts Bay just continued, and in that time, they ruled on the Shrimpton Will. Edmund Andros arrived in April of 1685, about two months after the court ruled on the will of Samuel Shrimpton. Now, the arrival of Edmund Andros and his reorganization of the colony threw everything into an uproar. Andros operated as almost a military dictator, almost an authoritarian. Boston was literally put under martial law. The only government body to survive more or less intact the arrival of Edmund Andros was the judiciary. They were the only body that was able to stand up to Andros and his dictatorial rule. Now, this standoff was billed as a fight between the papist, monarchist, absolute rule of the Stuarts in the person of Andros and the burgeoning values of what was more and more becoming an American identity, inalienable rights, the, the rule of law, that sort of thing. Of course, it's far more complex than that, and a lot less noble, and a lot more corrupt, but that's how the story was portrayed. And while these two behemoths were facing off, Samuel Shrimpton waltzed back into the story. His brother-in-law, his sister's husband, was a man named Francis Stepney. He was the dancing master there in Boston, something that apparently Boston High Society needed. But he was also the son of one of the magistrates. 
Stepney filed a suit against Shrimpton, in part for failing to vacate the land, but also to, quote, try his speaking blasphemous words and reviling the government, end quote. A man after mine own heart. That's in reference to the letter that Shrimpton wrote to the court there in Boston. But again, when the court ordered Shrimpton to appear, he said, No, the court had been dissolved a full eight months before the original ruling on this will, by royal decree, mind you. They have no authority to judge his claim to that land. Now, it's up for debate whether or not Samuel Shrimpton already had the backing of the Andros administration, or if he was just an obstinate farmer that hated the government. Regardless, when he offered this latest challenge, Andros saw the opportunity and jumped into the fray. He backed Samuel Shrimpton with everything he had, and that includes a lot of men with a lot of guns. When the date of the hearing arrived, a Monday, Samuel Shrimpton just stayed on the contested piece of land. He was guarded by a number of members of the Andros militia, and I presume he was busy drinking mojitos with his feet up on the porch. In normal times, the court did have armed agents who would have collected Samuel Shrimpton, but they weren't willing to do so here. That would lead to a clash with Andros's armed men, and that's a clash they certainly would have lost. A few days later, one of the magistrates there in Boston, Samuel Seawall, wrote in his journal, quote, This Monday we began palpably to die. End quote. The case of Samuel Shrimpton today is little more than a footnote of colonial legal history. But at the time it was a seminal moment in the formation of an American legal identity. It was a negative impact, it backed royal power in the person of Edmund Andros, but it showed the Americans that their laws mattered little in the face of naked royal military power. Three years later, when a ship arrived bearing unofficial word that King James had been overthrown by William III of Holland, Edmund Andros arrested the bearer of that news on charges of libel and even sedition. It looked for a moment like Andros was going to execute him. But it was about that time that the people of Boston rose up and overthrew Edmund Andros, the man behind the Dominion of New England. Now, we've discussed the fallout from that action before, at least in Massachusetts. But the other colonies all fell into a sudden political vacuum. The governor was out. All that was left were his soldiers. So what do we do? Most of New England proper followed Massachusetts' lead. They set up provisional councils, mostly in the mold and in the persons of their former governments. And then they wrote to England and waited for word. What are they supposed to do here? New York, though, was different. They'd always been different, largely thanks to their Dutch origins. New York had very large populations of non-English European Protestants. Obviously, there were the Dutch, but also German and Swiss Protestants. New York was officially Anglican, but there were a ton of either Lutheran or Calvinist faithful there. Add to that a smattering of Austrian Catholics and a fairly large community of Jews of mostly Dutch origin, and you have this stew of peoples who varied in their religious beliefs. 
but they agreed largely on two major principles. First, nearly everyone in New York believed that those severe and austere Puritans up in Massachusetts were crazy. Second, and this is key today, they thought that the English crown's economic policies were stupid and short-sighted and bad for business. Namely, they weren't fond of mercantilism. Now, I'm going to try not to get bogged down in economic theory here, but we do need to talk about this. Mercantilism was the economic theory prominent in most of Western Europe at the time that advocated for a positive trade balance. They wanted to export more goods and higher quality goods than they imported. It was an effort to accumulate as much hard coin as possible. Now that sounds obvious, right? And it is. That's the definition that you'll find in the dictionary. What really sets mercantilism apart from the feudalism that came before and the capitalism that followed is its centralization. They had a system of industrial and commercial and colonial and imperial infrastructure that was all based in the home country. Everything had to run through the hands of the monarchy or, you know, the council or whoever was in charge before it could be redistributed out to the colonies. Think about the Spanish Empire here. They owned literally all of the Western Hemisphere with a tiny sliver of Brazil excluded. They owned a sizable chunk of the richest parts of Asia as well. They extracted untold mountains of gold and silver and jewels and spices, all from their heretofore unrivaled imperial holdings. It was the grandest and greatest and richest empire that the world had ever known. But all of that physical wealth, all of that gold and silver, had to be shipped and carried overland via mule train and then shipped again on its way to Cadiz. Putting aside the ships that were lost to storm or shipwreck or pirates, think about the sheer overhead they were paying to transport all of that treasure. All of the ships that had to be built and supplied and maintained. All of the sailors who had to be paid wages. All of the accountants and bureaucrats that had to organize the treasure and then figure out where it's going to be shipped back to. It's a giant undertaking. And it's absolutely full of waste and corruption and incompetence. This greatest of all empires that the world had ever known lost time and time again in battles to a bunch of scruffy, illiterate French and English buccaneers. Time and time again, every time a pirate encounters the Spanish in this story, it's the same story. The Spanish guns were like 50 years old. The soldiers hadn't been paid in six months, and when the pirates arrived, the militia just kind of laid down their guns. I mean, what would you do there? Would you fight and die to protect a pile of gold that was only going back to Spain to enrich a bunch of fat cats? To line the pockets of a bunch of priests who told you that you were going to burn in hell if you didn't die to protect their gold? Gold that you were absolutely never going to see because, for whatever reason, you never seemed to receive a wage. Now, I'm not an economist. Hell, I can barely keep up with any discussion of modern economic theory, even when it's dumbed down for me. 
I have read a bit of Marx and Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. I do a lot better with dusty old tomes than modern theory, but Peter T. Leeson, author of The Invisible Hook, The Hidden Economics of Pirates, is an economist. Leeson points out that pirates were a an almost perfect exemplar of one of the key points in the wealth of nations. The point that self-interest is a central tenant in any healthy economic system. If you were a Spanish soldier who wasn't getting paid, why would you fight to protect some faraway king's gold from men who were really interested in getting their hands on that gold? Now, we're not going to, today, delve into a discussion of pirate economics, but it is a discussion that I am looking forward to. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The point I'm trying to get at here is that The world, at least the world as controlled by Western Europe, was largely under a mercantilist system, a centralized system where self-interest was not the rule of the day. There were, of course, exceptions. Pirates are an obvious example, as are a number of merchants living in the North American English colonies. The mercantilist system in New York in 1688 was very not popular. The people, though, were of two different minds on how to handle the problem. The Dutch families, who had been living in the region since it was New Amsterdam, the old money families, they had the power to just ignore the mercantilist system. Those families, though, were drifting dangerously close to a proto-capitalist territory. This was particularly prevalent in New Amsterdam and New York, but it's something that was happening all across the Dutch Empire. They were often seen as the most advanced mercantilist nation in Europe, largely because they'd incorporated a lot of self-interested innovations. All of this made New Amsterdam one of the wealthiest cities in the Americas. But when New Amsterdam became New York, the Stuarts imposed a much more strict French style of mercantilism on the colony. However, as we mentioned, they used a light hand on the Dutch. The new immigrants, though, those that came in after the English conquest of New York, mostly British and Irish and German, they lived under the mercantilist boot. When New York was incorporated into the dominion of New England, 
the problems only got worse. So imagine that you are one of those new families. What do you do when the authoritarian governor, Edmund Andros, is ousted and jailed? When the king, James II, has been deposed by William III? William III, of course, being a man who was always a friend to New Amsterdam and to good business. More than likely, you do something brash. A coalition of those new immigrants of middle-class merchants and artisans came together to formulate a plan. They decided to follow in Massachusetts' example and oust the acting governor, the one-time lieutenant governor under Edmund Andros. Now, I'm not going to trouble you with his name. He's not going to last long. With Andros out of the picture, his authority was null and void. Beyond that, this lieutenant governor was a coward, or at least he was in dereliction of his military duty. All of this disruption is happening alongside the early stages of what would go on to be called King William's War. The French and their Indian allies were invading and occupying the New York colony up to the north. Up in Maine, they were fighting the French, but here in New York, the lieutenant governor was too weak to do anything about these French advances. It created a perfect storm of upset colonists who wanted to do something about it. So that coalition of middle-class New Yorkers turned to one of their own, a man named Jacob Leisler. Leisler was German by birth and trained as a military officer in a Prussian academy. He served on board a ship of the Dutch West India Company and, during his service, had a number of run-ins with pirates. There were tussles with French and English buccaneers, and he had a stint in Barbary captivity. But by here in 1688, he had settled down in New York and was a moderate landowner and a captain in the New York militia. When word of Governor Andros's arrest reached New York, that lieutenant governor quashed any mention of it. Messengers were arrested or silenced or even killed. But word got out nonetheless, and the plot to install Leisler was expedited. He took command of the militia. Really, he already had command of the militia, and most of the militiamen never really cared for Governor Andros. That force occupied Fort James, formerly Fort Amsterdam. That was the large military complex that occupied all of Manhattan Island south of Wall Street. This was the beginning of what would be called Leisler's Rebellion, but that's not really fair. Sure, Leisler did seize power from the lieutenant governor who was appointed by Edmund Andros, who was appointed by the king. But that king was gone, and Andros was gone. And Leisler despite having seized power by military force, was seizing it from a military autocrat. And he acted in every way as a proper English governor. He sent messages to London to inform King William of what had happened. And he asked him for guidance, or, you know, a new governor. He wasn't standing in opposition to King William. He was trying to serve his interest here. And thanks to this new regime, business began to boom. Leisler appointed a committee that oversaw trade in the colony, and he appointed a committee of public safety. 
Now that has a negative connotation in the French Revolution, but this was just a police force, a fire brigade. This German-born immigrant was doing the job better than it had been done in some time. And when word arrived of a French attack on the city of Albany, the war was well underway by that point, it was 1690, Leisler led a force of the New York militia to counter it. And he did. It was a great victory over the French. But with Leisler out of the city, all of the people who stood in opposition to his governorship came forward. Now, to call these people Jacobites is probably too strong, or really not even accurate. Most of them weren't English. Nearly all of those who stood in opposition to Leisler were Dutch, and most of them belonged to those old money families. Usually a political families that were merchants of a vast wealth and huge land holdings. But inasmuch as those families did occasionally participate in politics, they almost uniformly fell into an anti-orangist Dutch faction and with the pro-Stuart Tories in England. And it wasn't because they were all that interested in politics, except that they had done very well under Stuart leadership, and less so under William of Orange, who was now in charge again. Now those opposition leaders had last names that most of you have probably heard. Names like Stuyvesant, De Vries, Roosevelt. We're talking about American nobility of Dutch extraction of the highest order here. And I'm not going to throw all of their names at you, there's a lot of them, but there is one name that you do need to remember. Friedrich Fliepsen was a Dutch immigrant to New Amsterdam. Upon the English takeover of New York, he anglicized his name to Frederick Phillips. And he may in fact be the single most important person in the story of the Pirates of the Round. If he is not the most important, he is one of the two most important. Now by this point in our story, Phillips owned a little piece of land that you also may have heard of. It's called Brooklyn. Now okay, he didn't actually own all of Brooklyn, he just owned, you know, half of it. But he also owned estates that ranged from sprawling manors to stately townhouses in places like Harlem and Yonkers and Westchester and Albany, and he had a cozy little getaway in Sleepy Hollow. In nearly all of those locations, he built churches. The most famous of these is the Old Dutch Church of Sleepy Hollow, thanks to the story of the Headless Horseman. But if you're in New York State and you come across an old Dutch church of insert township here, there's a pretty good chance this guy paid for it. I could not overstate his importance to New York history or his wealth or his land holdings. He was one of the largest merchants in New York at the time, and he was one of the key players in the opposition to Jacob Leisler. Now, he's not the main guy here, but Phillips is someone that we need to keep our eye on. I'm not going to spend much time on the military maneuvers in this little New York Civil War. None, really. Instead, I'll cut to the chase and tell you that Governor Leisler continued to act as governor from his base in Albany 
while those Dutch merchants held New York City. They did fight a few battles on land, all until the real English governor arrived in 1692 to arrest Leisler and to have him executed. But much more important to our story was their civil war at sea. Jacob Leisler acted in every way as a properly appointed English governor. That includes what may very well have cost him his life. Leisler granted privateering commissions to local sailors. Now that's a sensible move given the circumstances. You know, hey, we're at war with the French here, who are really nearby and they have a ton of ships. We would naturally love some naval support, but there's a war on in Europe, so privateers. On the other hand, of course, King James, shortly before the invasion of William III, issued a proclamation against piracy in the English world that really clamped down hard on the issuing of letters of marque. Of course, that was a Stuart-era policy. King William could have just waved it away. But it was William's policy to show the people of England that he was going to be a king of the English and not a king over the English, that he would enforce English laws as they stood when he came to the throne. It was a royal prerogative to grant the power to issue letters of mark, a power that had not been granted to this upstart governor. Now, we don't have records of exactly who Leisler granted commissions to. We do know of a few sharp fights they had with the French, and even of one fairly major clash they had with forces raised by those Dutch merchants. But we don't have their names. However, we could make assumptions. The incoming governor, the proper English governor, saw the need for a privateer force to guard New York City, and he had the right to grant commissions to local sailors. And those names, the names that the incoming governor would grant commissions to, are other names that you likely already know. Those are the names, in large part, who will make up the Pirates of the Round. We'll dive into that next time, though. For now, I want to leave you with a summation of this whole episode from Douglas R. Burgess Jr. in his book, The Pirate's Pact. Burgess writes, quote, The circumstances of the Leislerian Rebellion might seem far removed from the world of pirates. Yet the events of March 1691 were pivotal, for concealed behind the bare facts of the rebellion were the deep currents of political, social, and religious schism that would make New York a pirate haven for the next quarter century. Leisler and his followers have been termed proto-populists, a loose federation of lower-middle-class shopkeepers, tradesmen, sailors, and farmers. They identified themselves as ardent Protestants, Whigs, and fervent supporters of William of Orange. The men they chose as their political enemies were those who had profited most under Andros, wealthy merchants like Peter Schuller, William Smith, Nicholas Bayard, and Frederick Phillips. The execution of Leisler was a nuisance. Dead, he became a martyr for disenfranchised Whigs who felt betrayed by the failure of the crown to fulfill the promises of the glorious revolution. End quote. Next time, we're going to explore that split 
and introduced some of the sailors who had been empowered as privateers and chose to take a different tack and a radical. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. And everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family. You all make this show possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you really should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight